Hello, and welcome to Using Risk Appetite, Contrarian Views. This is the 25th episode in the Crossing Thin Ice podcast series, brought to you by Actuarial Risk Management. This is Dave Ingram, and I'm joined today, as always, by Max Rudolph. Today, Max is looking at how a disciplined approach to risk appetite and an investment policy statement that is consistent with a risk appetite can help an insurer to avoid adding risk at the wrong time. The risk appetite and the investment policy statement can each act as the stimulus to start critical conversations about risks that are accumulating at just the right time to keep those accumulations from reaching dangerous levels. And by the way, nothing in today's podcast is intended to be investment advice. We are here to provide educational material. We hope that you also take advantage of our free newsletter and webcast for additional education on risk management topics. And now, to you, Max. Let's get started. Risk appetite defines the strategy chosen around risk. Many insurers formally adopt a policy at the board level, making changes to it sticky and avoiding frequent updates. Our personal risk strategy provides similarities that firms can learn from. Each of us thinks we're rational, but we're likely to fall prey to the fear of missing out like greed when conditions are good and fear when extreme conditions appear during a crisis. Did you buy the dot-coms in 1999, financial stocks in 2006, Bitcoin or meme stocks in this most recent cycle? The current financial run hasn't been completed, but within an insurer, Do you own concentrated positions in an asset class, financial products, or distribution networks? Have you become highly levered? How did you react to earlier corrections? Most importantly, what did you learn? When we exhibit normal behavior of fear and greed, this leads to an unstable risk appetite, willing to take more risk when conditions are positive and stable, and reducing risk during a crisis. When the switch between risk on and risk off occurs, is often obvious to the so-called rational investor, with others continuing to buy the dip very late in the cycle and just before a crash. This group of latecomers is often referred to as dumb money and generally consists of retail investors, but that's not true. There are plenty of professional investors who have gotten burned when they were late to the party, got caught swimming naked when the tide went out, and the true situation was revealed. This has been true for institutional investors and their boards. I authored a research paper following the financial crisis of 2008 that concluded insurers outperformed banks during that period because their investment policy statements, or IPS, required by regulators and formally approved by the board, provided some friction and made it harder to add new asset classes and concentrated positions. Slowing down the ability to add the latest hot asset class kept existing strategies intact, avoiding many of the losses when conditions weakened. Companies that stress test and scenario plan also have an advantage, especially if the results are used to manage the business rather than as a checkbox exercise for regulators and rating agencies. Behavioral finance encourages us to be aware of our shortcomings and biases. Recency bias is especially prevalent in the financial markets. When others do well, we feel obliged to follow their lead, called herding, even if it's not clear why the decision makes sense for our unique circumstances. When others are having success, it's hard not to follow their lead. 
This can this can lead to, to adding to risk appetite levels at inopportune moments. It's always better to take a deep breath and think about what might be missing from the analysis done to date. When a product or new asset class is being considered that comes with new characteristics, there's excitement in the room and expectations of high returns. It may have been brought to the company by an external hire with prior success at a competitor. Everyone wants them to succeed. A contrarian viewpoint is often discouraged, but it's important for someone to consider the product or asset class over a longer time horizon and within a full business cycle. Some products today have had success over the last 10 years, perhaps driven by government stimulus and can demonstrate high historical returns. How will these products or asset classes perform during a recession? Spike in interest rates, quantitative tightening, or deflationary period? Demographic trends are expected to slow growth in the Western democracies and previous growth engines like China. Climate change and reversing stimulus will also stress these products, making it hard for them to meet client needs and ensure return targets. There are times when different approaches are appropriate and plural rationality concepts address how to match up preferred responses to current conditions. That discussion extends the simple slow it down and contrarian thought processes discussed here. Formal risk appetites make it harder to repeatedly change practices without making it impossible. That's a good thing, providing time for additional analysis to be completed. A risk manager can often provide contrarian views that lead to thought-provoking discussions before decisions are made. It may seem like everyone else is being successful at your expense, but maintaining a mostly stable risk appetite will pay off in the long run. Are you challenged to meet your need for actuaries? Actual Risk Management can help. ARMS Data Modeling Institute, or DMI, is a team of talented and experienced modeling actuaries working with an extensive bench of senior consultants. ARM will partner with you to shift all or part of your actuarial and modeling needs to the DMI at a significant cost savings without sacrificing integrity. Contact ARM today about how the DMI's modeling evaluation services can help position you and your company for tomorrow's challenges. Can you talk us through an example? Uh, you're always often talking about stress tests and, and scenarios, how you would use them in a, in a changing situation. The risk manager should have a list of, of rotating risks that can be, be stressed based on both the current environment and, and also off of any risk interactions or concentrations, uh, something that's not performing. And, and that could be done on a, on a recurring basis. Uh, they don't all have to be done every year. Uh, for example, a pandemic scenario, you might only do that every five years since your exposure for that type of uh, block of business doesn't change very quickly. What keeps you up at night is a good risk to test more frequently uh, or a risk that's changed materially due to environmental changes like a new asset class or merger. You know, a good example would be the, the rapid change in, in interest rates over the last few years, whether they were going down or, or going up. That's a good time to, to add focus to that. Current options for scenarios might focus on the asset side with illiquid assets and, and credit risk. Dave, you've led the, the dangerous risk survey through quite a few iterations and, 
and last year it opened about this time in in December. Can can you discuss when when we should expect it and how it might differ from previous iterations? Well, thanks for that question, Max. Um, our dangerous risk survey is a great a great tool. Uh, I know of dozens actually of of insurers who use it as part of their process every year to reassess their list of top risks. It, we are opening it again this year. Uh, Today, uh, we started this survey several years ago with a list of about 60 risks. Uh, we got them from four or five companies' uh, top risk lists. We just merged the list and cut out the overlaps. We've been using this tool. It's a ranking tool called All Our Ideas. Uh, some people say that taking this survey is actually fun. I, I, I can't promise that, but uh, this year we wanted to make it a little easier for you by trimming down the list over the years that that list had grown from 60 lists up to about 80 and uh this year we're going to start out with trimming it down to 50 uh and all the risks that we dropped out were ones that had never once in the seven years we've six or seven years we've done this and made it into the top 25. but we think that with the pandemic being over now and the emergence of inflation and challenging employment trends some of the major changes we've seen in the top uh, rank risks over this past several years are changing again. Uh, we expect to see even more changes this year. For an insurer, what is the what should the relationship between the investment policy statement and the uh, risk appetite be? The investment policy statement or, or IPS it, it needs to be definitely aligned with the risk appetite. There's there's specific risks that the NEIC requires to be managed in the IPS for an insurer. Uh, but it should also go beyond that to consider risks that are emerging or, or due to interactions with other risks. And that's something that I think we've not done enough of in the past is looking at those interactions. Statistically, the law of large numbers says that risks like mortality and property loss will average out if you have enough exposure. But I'm more worried uh, a lot of times about the systemic risks like interest rates and climate uh, that impact everyone and are harder to hedge, and, and those need to be managed more closely. Question for you, Dave. Uh, you've seen quite a few risk appetite statements over the years. What do you think about using the, the risk appetite in this way? I, I'm of two minds on that. I, I guess one of the issues I've often felt about investment policy statements and, and using them as a major driver of of risk management for the investment portfolio is that uh, it's, it's pretty much standard practice to have the concentration limits, the, 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 the limits for how much you'll, you'd invest in a particular asset class to usually be set at around 200% of what the expected level uh, of, of holdings for uh, investment classes is. And, and that just seems to me like it, it's, it's too wide of a road. Uh, it, it gives the uh, the managers of the portfolio so much freedom to to do a lot of things. I mean that that's great if that's the kind of investment program that you have is is allowing uh, the investment managers to to double the size of the portfolio without even checking with anybody. But most insurance companies uh, are are not running that kind of portfolio. There, uh, a lot of insurance companies have have a lot of things that they're trying to accomplish with asset liability management as, as well as with just looking for returns. I, I, I think that even if you don't call them limits, uh, you, you, you probably 
need to combine some kind of a checkpoint system with your investment policy limits. And the checkpoints are needed for risk management. You may or may not want them for portfolio management. You know, I said I'm of two minds. On, on the other side, Max's suggestion about how uh, a risk appetite statement can be used kind of as an anchor to to keep a company in a reasonable position. But I think it's also healthy that the company not think of their risk appetite statement as carved in stone. I've done exercises a number of times with companies where they really struggle to write their first risk appetite statement because they're worried about uh, not wanting to change it. That's usually a big hurdle. And I, and I think companies should go into it thinking of, well, we'll do our best we can for this risk appetite statement if if we come up with something that is too tight and we wind up broaching it too often, then we should think about loosening it in some way. If it comes out to be much too loose, like what I said about the investment policy statements, and we never come near it, then you probably should be considering tightening it up some so that it does produce some some useful feedback to you. Yeah, let me push back a little bit on, on from the investment standpoint, just because I, I think investments are are a bit different from liabilities in that the, the value of liabilities is, is pretty stable from year to year. You're not trading it uh, on a market value basis. It's, it's on a book value basis where a lot of times we're looking at the investments on a market value basis. And, and those can become inflated through bubbles or, or fall down below what the intrinsic value would be. And so you could make the argument that you want to leave additional margin uh, in your risk appetite or in your investment policy statement. I, I agree with you about uh, essentially how I would interpret it, that you, if you have a red, yellow, green scorecard can be, be very useful to start those discussions and have those discussions along the way. Uh, once that initial, you know, the yellow limit is, is crossed. But I think what we're both saying is that it's important to, to continue to have discussions after, after these policies are, are set. They're not, you know, you don't want to be changing them every month, but they're also not, not set in stone. There are many times when it is good to pause and listen to a variety of viewpoints about your risk taking. Risk appetite and the investment policy statement can help by providing a signal that you probably should heed. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode of Crossing Thin Ice, presented by Actuarial Risk Management. If you found it valuable, please like, subscribe, and share with your colleagues.